In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue studying where we left off in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, we had started um, the first few verses of chapter 5, so I'm just going to read those verses uh, again this time, and then we'll continue from where we left off. And here, St. Paul is speaking about the spiritual ministry. He's speaking about the obstacles to spiritual ministry, speaking about the characteristics of the spiritual ministry. Um, all of all of these um, points are very important like um, for, for people who are Sunday school servants, for those who are entrusted with any kind of service, that we keep in mind um, the things that the Lord um, is speaking through the mouth of St. Paul. So he starts off, uh, you know, this is the part we had covered last time. So he says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, which is our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's speaking about our expectation of the place that the Lord has prepared for us in heaven after we leave this world. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So we are in hopeful expectation, waiting for uh, the time that we would leave this body and go to heaven. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Okay, so I think this is the part where we had left off. This is the, the, the new verse for, for this week. So, um, so we know that he spoke about the tent representing the body, right? So we who are in this tent, meaning this body, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So what do you think that means? What is he trying to say? Yes, he wants to go to heaven. So what does he mean by saying, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed? Yeah, so so death is not the end. Like we think in terms of what we are losing, right? We tend to think that way in terms of what we are lo losing. But here he's saying we shouldn't have this mentality of death is losing something as though we are being unclothed, right? That we are losing the clothes, losing the body, right? That we have. But instead we should look at it that we are being further clothed, meaning something is being added to us, right? That while we are in this tent, we have mortality, meaning our life is limited, right? But in that life, or, or, or this mortality will be swallowed up by life in the sense that we will no longer be mortal, but we will be immortal, right? And an example of this is um, the Jews, right? So the Jews, when they were wandering in the desert, right, they were, they were looking forward to the promised land, right? But when things were difficult for them during that 40 years that they spent in the desert, they began to look back, like they began to think back to what things were like uh, when, when they were still in Egypt. And even though that they were slaves, and even though they were burdened, and even though they were mistreated and abused, and all these bad things were happening to them, but they remembered what these, these good things, they remembered the food that they had, the pots of meat right, that they, they spoke about. They spoke about these perceived comforts, right, that they had looking back at their life as slaves in Egypt. So instead of looking forward 
to the promised land and looking forward to what God has prepared for them in the promised land. Instead, they were looking backward, right? And we tend to do this when we look backwards. We, we, we look at this life and it's like everything that we do is we're trying to hold on to it. We're trying to hold on to this life in whatever way that we can. Any perceived comfort that we have, any good thing that we have, right? Instead of looking forward to heaven, we are looking to this life and we're like clinging to it. And we're saying, no, you know what? I don't want to let go of anything, right? And so this is kind of maybe as a reflection of our lack of faith, right? Instead of believing that heaven really holds for us the greatest joy, that it really holds for us the union with God, that it really holds for us all the promises that we know that we've read about in the scripture. Instead, we find ourselves so sorrowful at letting go of anything in this life because, you know, we can perceive the things here. We can see the things here. We can touch the things here. So often we believe that the things here are really like of such value. So instead of thinking that we are going to be further clothed, that we're going to be given more in heaven, instead we're just focusing on the things that we are losing, being unclothed. St. Clement of Alexandria, he says, Oh my Lord, take away from me by your grace the garment of desires and the darkness of hell, and clothe me with the garment of your holy light, which is the new world itself, before I depart from the body. Oh my Lord, make me a member in the body of your only begotten Son to make me feel the secret of his union with you as much as, as my weak nature can bear. So in this prayer that St. Clement of Alexandria is praying, it's based on this verse, right? He's saying, take away from me the garments of desire. Take away from me the, the, the attachments of the world and clothe me with the garments of your holy light, right? We want to be further clothed. We want to receive from God the clothing that is the heavenly clothing, the eternal clothing, and not to be focusing on this earthly clothing. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee, okay? So what does it mean when it says that he has given us the spirit as a guarantee, right? The Holy Spirit that we have received from God is a promise of what is to come. It is like a deposit, like God gave us the Holy Spirit here in this world, right? We, when we are chrismated, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the, the idea is that this Holy Spirit is a guarantee of what is to come. It is, it is a deposit of what is to come. It's like a proof saying, see the Holy Spirit that you have received now while you are still in the flesh, while you're still on earth. This is like a, um, like a sample, right, of what you will receive in heaven. And if what we have received now is glorious, how much more glorious is the work of the Holy Spirit in us in heaven? Uh, St. Paul, when he spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, what for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Meaning the experience that we have with God. I mean, if you look at, let's say the lives of the saints. Okay, in the lives of the saints, we see a great many miracles. We see like, like a great um even more than the miracles, but we see the work of sanctification. We see the, 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 the work of the Holy Spirit to transform and sanctify human beings to make them to be Christ-like, right? We see this happening even while we are in this corrupted flesh through the work of the Holy Spirit here on earth, 
right? So it's saying this is a guarantee. This is a sample of what we will find in heaven when we are fully sanctified, right? When we are fully made to be in the, in the union with the Lord. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent with the Lord, okay? So this mentality that he is exhorting us to have is that we consider that whenever we are in the body, we are absent from the Lord. This does not mean that God is not with us because we are in the flesh. He is trying to explain that the more that we cling to the world, the more that we cling to the earthly body, we are not yet experiencing the fullness of what is to come. We're not yet experiencing the fullness. Like we think that we have tasted the Lord here. Just wait and see what we will taste there. So it should be something that we wait for, like expectantly. You know, in the end of the creed, when we pray, we look for the resurrection of the dead, right? Like we are looking for the time where we are with God. We are looking forward to the time of resurrection. So we, in that sense, right? We look at the time that we have here on earth and we are not so fascinated with it. We, we are not so excited about it because we feel what, that while we are at home in the body, like if I make this world my home, if I consider that this flesh that I have is my home, is the, is the place where I am comfortable, is the place that I want to remain, then we are absent from the Lord, right? Because we have, we have, we have invested too much into this body that we have and not into the, the afterlife, the life that is to come. For we walk by faith, not by sight. For we walk by faith, not by sight. The senses that God gives us to perceive reality, right? We talk about like the five senses, right? That we have five senses. All of those five senses, they only perceive the physical world. That's it. They only perceive the physical world. You cannot perceive anything else with those five senses. The only way to perceive the spiritual things is with our own spirit, right? So you can say that the spirit is like another sense that God gives. But this sense has been like maligned, has been diseased, has been corrupted. We, 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 we are born with this sense damaged, right? Just like a person could be born blind where they physically cannot see. And they are convinced you know, that there is no such thing as light. There is no such thing, such thing as sight. There is nothing that I'm missing, right? The only way that a blind person knows that they're blind is how? Huh? Well, how else? How does, I mean, a person who is blind, let's say born, born blind, if you ask them, are you blind? What are they going to say? Yes, right? But how do they know that they're blind? Because somebody told them, right? Somebody told, somebody came and said, hey, you are missing a sense. I have no way of knowing it myself because I simply am not born with it. I can't, I assume that the world as I perceive it is, is the reality, number one. And it's the same as everybody else. Like everybody else perceives the world as I do. So imagine if you had a blind person and they cannot see, they can touch, they can hear, they can smell, they can taste, all the other senses are working, but they can't see. They will assume, unless anybody else comes and tells them, they will assume that, that's normal. Like that's the extent of perception. They will not assume or believe that anything is missing unless they are told by people that they trust that there is a sense that you are missing. You cannot see, right? I can see, and, I, and by virtue of the fact that I can see, I can do things that maybe you can't do. Like I can walk across a room and not run into anything, 
That's something that I can do as a person that can see. Whereas maybe a person who is blind struggles to do that same thing. So a person who, who is spiritually blind, born into the world, does not know that they are spiritually blind. Assumes that the senses they have, which are the five physical senses, assumes that those senses tell them the reality 100% of, of, of existence, right, of reality. This is reality. What is reality? It's what my five senses tell me. I can't even tell that there's anything missing because my sixth sense is just non-functioning, okay? So how is it then that I would realize that there is something missing in me? It is because I am told. It is because I'm told. I see examples of other human beings that have that sense exercised, that have that sense in use, that, that perceive things that I cannot perceive in the spiritual way. I read the Bible and I realize that the God who made me, made me to have that sense, but that sense in me is damaged. And he tells me the prescription of how to grow in my spiritual sense, in my spiritual sight. So if I want to see spiritually, I have to invest energy and effort into growing my spiritual sight. This is why when we talk about reading the Bible, praying, and uh, taking communion, the sacraments, the church, all the things we talk about is to strengthen the spiritual sight. And the more my spiritual sight is strengthened, the more I can perceive, right, by faith, by spiritual sight, not by physical sight. And this is here what St. Paul means. He says, for we walk by faith, or you could say by spiritual sight, not by physical sight, right? We make all of our decisions, or many people make their decisions completely on physical sight, completely on the physical senses, completely on the world system, right? They make decisions, okay? But our physical senses are not designed to perceive the spiritual things and are not designed to even be aware of the existence of those things. But as we begin to build up our spiritual senses, right, what will happen? What will happen is we'll begin to see. And we will know that we are seeing, just like a blind person, okay, who has never seen light before. If, they, if there is some kind of treatment that allows them to begin to see, and they begin to see some, even, even, even in a foggy way, even not in a very clear way, just to see light, they will immediately recognize that this light is something different than what they've ever seen before. And they will understand that this is the beginning of sight, right? This is the beginning of sight. And so the same with the spiritual senses. This is why we always say what, when it comes to like the spiritual life, the Christian life, is you can't understand it. And then once you understand it, you apply it. No, it's the opposite. You first apply it. And once you apply it, then you will understand. Think about if it's like, back to the analogy of the physical blindness. Imagine he had this person who was physically blind and he said, you know what, I'm going to study what it means to see. And once I completely understand what it means to see, then I will try to see. Well, you, 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 the only way to understand what it means to see is to actually see. You know, there's, no, there's, no, there's no way to describe. Like, if you had a person who was born blind and you try to describe to them what it means to see, there is no word you can use to make them understand. No word. You can't say light. You can't say color. You can't say you know, brightness, you can't say in no, no way you can ever describe to a person who is blind, who has never seen light, what light is, right? The same thing is true for someone who is spiritually blind. You can't just convince someone who is spiritually blind based on the apologetics of faith, 
and here is the information, and here is the prophecies, and here is the fulfillment, and here is the reasoning, and here is this. If you are not willing to do what God said you must do in order to see, then none of that. It's like it's it's like I'm trying to explain to you a concept that's foreign to you, to make you who just simply doesn't have that sense to understand. Like explaining what light is to a blind person. But if a person says, you know what, I acknowledge that I am blind. I acknowledge there is something that I don't have, something that I'm supposed to have, that I don't have. Tell me what I need to do in order to be healed. And if that person begins to follow whatever instructions in order for them to be healed, then they will see the light. And when they see the light, then it'll all make sense. None of the words had any meaning to them. Now they begin to understand the words. Now they begin to understand the teaching. You know, the apostles even though they lived with Christ, they didn't understand anything about what he was doing. They didn't understand what does it mean that he came for salvation. He, they didn't understand that he was going to die. And once he, he, he revealed to them that he was going to die, he, they didn't understand why. It was only afterward, once they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that suddenly they transformed into being like these different people. You know, St. Peter who was always like very stubborn, very like, you know, not wanting to just believe what the Lord said, he became a leader and he went and he preached and he was willing to die. The same one who denied him now is willing to die for him because he saw, right? He saw. This is what makes the martyrs be able to die. They don't die because of information. They don't die because they heard some information and they believe that information is true. That's not faith. Faith is not believing that a certain set of information is true, right? Obviously, we have to believe that it's true, but that's not really what faith is. Faith is seeing the light. Faith is perceiving it in such a way that I might not even be able to describe that experience to another person because that other person might be blind, right? This is what it means that we walk by faith. We walk by spiritual sight. We see with the light of faith. We see through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Right? And then it is through that that we live as faithful Christians, not because of the five senses that we have. An example of this is um, the story of Elisha and his servant Gehazi. Okay? Here, Elisha, the prophet, was surrounded, and his servant Gehazi, they were surrounded by the Syrian army, and the Syrian army was like, coming down on them to kill them, okay? Um, and so Gehazi, in this passage, they just call him the servant, right? So it says, and when the servant of the man of God, the servant of Elisha, arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha was not afraid of the Syrian army because he saw the spiritual army that was with them protecting them. So he was just, he wasn't afraid because of what he saw, right? It wasn't, it wasn't because he believed in information. It was because he saw, he saw the army with them. Gehazi, on the, other side, on the other hand, he did not see. So he's worried, right? He's worried. He's, 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 he's like, how are we going to defeat them? It's impossible, 
right, for us as two men to defeat this army. Elisha could have tried to explain to his servant, but there was no way that his servant was really going to believe until he saw for himself this army. And so that is what Elisha prayed for. Elisha prayed that, that his servant, his eyes would be opened. And once his eyes were opened, everything was different, right? So this is what we are striving for. We are striving to see spiritually. We're striving so that we can open our eyes and see the angels in the church. You know, like when we pray the liturgy, we believe that there's angels with us praying. We believe there's an angel of the, of the sacrifice in the sanctuary, right? Some very holy people, you know, at different points in time have seen these angels, right? Maybe we have not seen them. It's okay if we don't see them with our physical eyes, but we should see them with our spiritual eyes. We should believe in their presence. We should believe that these spiritual things are real and they are around us and they're protecting us just like Elisha and his servant. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him, right? So he's saying rather than, you know, being content to be in the body, no, instead, actually, we are more content to be absent from the body so that we can be present with the Lord in heaven. But whether we are present in the body or absent in the body, regardless of what we are doing or where we are, we want to be pleasing to God, right? Whatever it is, we want to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, right? So this is a reminder that the Lord sees all things. He sees all that we do, and he judges according to our deeds. Makes it very clear here. All right? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But as we said, I, I, I remember um, recently I had this conversation with someone. The, the, what is it that the Lord judges us for? Like when we stand there before the judgment seat of Christ, right? Is God going to point out every sin we've ever committed? The ones that we didn't repent of, right? Because if we were to be condemned and judged for every sin that we've ever committed, then the question is, well, in what place then is there for forgiveness? Like we always speak about human beings, right? And we say, when you forgive somebody, don't bring it up again. Like when you, when you forgive someone of something, don't bring it up and push it in their face again, right? As human beings and our relationships with one another, we always say that. The same is true with God, Right? He is not going to come to us and say, why did you steal this? Or why did you lie about this? Or why did you lust about this? Or why did you do this? Right? For those things, we have repented and confessed. So if I truly have repented and confessed of sins, God is not going to like churn them up again and put them in my face. Actually, this is the devil's job. This is what the devil does. In the book of Revelation, he calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. Right? The, the devil who is the accuser, he is the one who accuses us day and night before God. And he goes to God and says, you see this person, your child, what he has done? He has done, you know, all these things. But, but to God, God has forgotten those things. Those things are not in the mind of God. It is as though those things never even happen. This is something that should bring us great hope when we think about the judgment day. Because sometimes we think about the judgment day, and I think to myself, like, how is God going to judge me? What about all of my secret sins? 
What about all of my secret thoughts? What about the things that nobody else knows about? Well, nobody should know about them except one person, and that's your father of confession who should know. And he is the one that we ask to forgive us of our sins, and God forgets those sins, right? So that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he will not even bring up anything that we have done that we have not repented of, okay? According to what he has done, whether good or bad. God also remembers the good. Like it's not, it's not that only God looks at the bad things. He he looks at the good. Actually, the scripture says God will not even forget uh, if we if we bring a cup of cold water to a servant of God, right? Something as simple as that. God wants to find reasons to reward us. He wants to look at every good thing that we have done so he can reward us. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So given all of this knowledge of heaven and earth and the self and the judgment, we persuade men. Why? How do we, we persuade men based on the truth? We persuade men based on our vision, based on our seeing, right? That, that the, the, the Christian vision, the spiritual vision, right? That is the true vision is what we go and we tell people who are living in blindness and we try to convince them to persuade them, to persuade them that, the, 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 the five mere senses, the physical senses that they have are not sufficient to perceive reality. They are not sufficient to answer the most important questions of life. Like, where did we come from? Where are we going? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Those big questions cannot be answered by the five senses. There is no answer to them, right? In the, in the five senses. So we testify of God and what we know as the true reality to those who are living in blindness, okay? And, and, and when he says here, the terror of the Lord, like part of what we are preaching, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's you know, we preach a mixed message. I mean, I wanna say mixed message. We, we pray, we, 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 we preach different things. Like some things we preach are positive and some things we preach are negative in the sense that the positive things is we are calling people to live a life of purpose, live a life of peace and a life of joy and a life of salvation, like all those good things, right? But there is also the terror of the Lord. Like, like for, for some, just realize, like, apart from God, there is no salvation, right? This is also a reality. This is also a truth, right? And we are preaching both messages. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Okay, so what is what is St. Paul saying here? Um, so St. Paul, he, um, he is saying that defending himself, okay, and those who serve with him, right? So like the apostles who are serving the Corinthians, it is not for their own sake, but it is for their sakes, right? Why? To give them an answer for those who would accuse him and try to hinder his ministry. So there was people who are accusing St. Paul of being a false teacher, a false apostle, that he is not, you shouldn't listen to him. So again, the only reason that St. Paul is, is defending himself, it's not because he wants them to like him. It's not because he, you know, feels bad that they don't, you know, follow him or they don't like him or they don't say good things about him. He is defending his ministry and defending himself so that when others come to the Corinthians and they try to sow doubt in them about the Apostle Paul, about the 
message that he's preaching, they now have an answer to give to those who are boasting in their appearance. Those false teachers who are boasting, pretending like they are the teachers, pretending like they are the apostles, pretending like they are the ones who are interested in the salvation of the people. But all they care about is their own glory. All they care about is the glory that they received from the people. When those false teachers come to the Corinthians and they tell the Corinthians, you shouldn't be listening to St. Paul because St. Paul is he's teaching lies and he's not authentic and he's not an apostle. Now you will have the ammunition you need to answer them. That's why he's saying this. He's saying it because he wants them to have salvation. He's saying because he doesn't want anyone to sow doubt in their heart about him because he wants them to believe his message because his message is from God to them. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Okay. Some people, um, they could look at St. Paul and the life that he chose to live and conclude that he was insane, that he was beside himself. But beside himself means he's crazy. He's insane, right? They look at a man who chooses to live the way that he does, um, and, they could, and they could say about him um, that he is insane. And actually, he was accused of being mad. Festus, in the book of Acts, chapter 26, the governor, when he was talking to St. Paul and he listened to St. Paul's preaching, he accused him of being mad, okay? And St. Paul, he responded, he said what? But he, uh, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. The way that a person who sees with the spiritual sight lives, the decisions they choose to make are going to appear mad and insane to those who cannot see, right? To those who cannot see, they cannot understand the reason that, that we do certain things. They cannot see the reason of morality, why we, why we have the moral system that we have. They cannot see it. They cannot see or understand why we would believe in a God who was incarnate and crucified and died for us. They cannot see why we would believe in the resurrection, right? They don't understand. And like, you know, the famous uh, saying of St. Anthony, and he said, what, well, the day will come when the world will go mad, right? And then they will turn to you and say, you are mad. You are not like us, right? That is today, right? We have been living in these days. We are the ones that they accuse of being mad. And the reason they, they think that we are mad is because they're the ones that actually are mad. But as St. Paul lived, right, according to truth and reason, and yet those who were mad could not identify it as truth. They could not identify it as reason because their minds had been warped, right? So here he's saying, if we are accused of being mad, if we are accused of being crazy, if we are accused of being irrational, then it is, it is for God. It is because our belief in God, they perceive us to be this way. It doesn't mean that we actually are, but we are perceived as being mad, right? This is, this is you know, this is uh, kind of the characteristic, unfortunately, of our day, you know? And it's been, you know, maybe every generation to some extent has been like that. But sadly, every generation, it gets worse and worse. So we are in a place now where, um, it's just kind of exploded, right? This idea of the insanity, the insanity that is in the world. So when we experience this, we should remind ourselves of St. Paul, 
right? St. Paul, he was persecuted. He was accused. Um, he was attacked, but he didn't give up. And because he didn't give up, he was able to convert so many countries to Christianity. He was able to establish so many churches, even against people who thought he was insane. You know, like like the, the, when he went to these places, yes, some people accepted his, 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 his teaching, but a lot of people did not accept it. And they would stone him and they would throw him out of the city and he would get up and go right back in again, right? He did not give up, right? And he was accused of this all over and yet he remained faithful in the end God gave him victory over his enemies. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Very powerful verse. He's saying, we are compelled to preach the truth. We are compelled to sacrifice ourselves for the truth. Why? Because if it weren't for him, we would be dead. If it weren't for the Lord dying for us, then we would be dead. And so by him dying for us, he purchased us. And because he purchased us, now we are compelled to live for him and not to live for ourselves. So while we still live in the world, our life in the world should not be according to our selfish ambitions. It should not be according to our selfish desires. It should not be because he purchased us with his blood, right? That we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us, right? This is why St. Paul preached. This is why St. Paul traveled. This is why St. Paul suffered. This is why he did all of those things. It's because he felt like his life was no longer his own. He was purchased by the blood of Christ. His life was not his own. He was not free. He was, he was not at liberty to live selfishly. Because the St. Paul that lived that way died. Right? He died. And we should think of ourselves in this context. That in our baptism we are dying. And we are being resurrected with the Lord. And the person who is resurrected with the Lord. Should no longer live for the worldly lusts should no longer live for the worldly desires, right? That we have been purchased now by the blood of Christ. We should live according to the commandment of God and that we should sacrifice ourselves for his sake, right? This is what St. Paul is doing here. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer, okay? The relationships that now St. Paul has with Christ, it is not just the relationship of one man knowing another man. And the relationships that we have even with one another as the body of Christ, it goes beyond just acquaintances of one person who meets another human being. Our relationships now, right, are not according to the flesh, that we have a spiritual relationship. The relationship of the spirit, the binding in the spirit, even like when, when when God speaks about marriage, for instance, he says, what a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, meaning their relationship is not according to the physical relationship. It is a spiritual union between these two people. And as the body of Christ, we are spiritually united together in an invisible mystical way that is beyond the fleshly and earthly relationship. Okay. And this spiritual relationship that we have with one another is greater than the blood relationship. 
It is greater than the relationships of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. It is the, the relationship of being members of the body of Christ. Okay. The apostles, they knew Christ in the flesh because during the time of his incarnation, right, they had a, they physically interacted with him. They, he, he, they heard him speak physically, right? They could touch him physically, right? But now the relationship with him is a spiritual relationship. It is not according to the flesh, right? And the relationship that the apostles and that the believers had now in the New Testament, after receiving the Holy Spirit, is a greater relationship than the physical. Meaning the relationship that St. Peter had with Christ was stronger now through the Spirit than the physical relationship that he had with Christ when he was on earth. And this is manifested by the way that the apostles lived, the way they, the way they, what they were able to give up, what they were able to do, the, the vision that they had, right? Going back to the concept of that spiritual vision. The vision that they had was much clearer now in this era, in this era of the New Testament after the resurrection of Christ, in understanding of what is it that their purpose was and their mission was and who Christ was and what he did for them than it was when Christ was physically on earth. This is why, like, the relationship that we can have with the Lord in the spirit goes far beyond any physical relationship, right? Actually, it reminds me of the, the, the part of the scripture where um, so Jesus is in the house and the people are telling him, um, your, your, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you, right? What was Christ's response? Do you remember? Yeah, the people that do the will of God are my family, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, all those what? The people who do the will of God. It's not about the physical mother and the physical brothers and the physical family. It's about the spiritual. So Christ has given to us in the church the spiritual family. And this spiritual family is not according to the flesh. And it is more powerful and should be more intimate than even the physical relationships that we have with our actual family members. That is the way, and if you look at the early church, this is the way the early church lived. They would give, they would take all of their physical possessions and they would sell it and they would give the money to the church and to offer it to those who were poor because they saw and believed that those people who were poor as, as members of the body of Christ were so dear to them that they were willing to change their life and sacrifice of their own life in order for them to have what they do not have, right? This is the unity, the fellowship of the spirit. And this is something we have to keep in mind. We are not just separate individuals and separate families that are coming to pray a liturgy in one location. And then afterward, we all go back to our respective homes. That's not the church. The church is saying that the relationship that we have in the body of Christ is more powerful than even the relationships I have with my family members. And that we should treat one another accordingly. We should treat one another with that uh, sense of spiritual unity that when we come and we take communion, communion is being in union with the Lord and being in union with one another. So it is, it is strengthening our mystical union with one another as the body, not individual bodies, but as the one body of the Lord that 
we come and partake of him in the liturgy and that we that, that the lord forms us and turns us into his body right we are eating of his body to become his body right we are becoming his body and, and here this is what saint paul is speaking about is the strength of relationship therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation all things have passed away behold all things have become new so the work of the holy spirit in the individual is to heal us of the corrupted nature that is entered into us after the fall so that the old man the person that i was before receiving the holy spirit in myself before being baptized that that person dies that person uh, has passed away that person is not, not me anymore and i am called to a new life that's why even in baptism we are given a new name right we have a new name we have a new calling we have an, a new role we have the way that we spend our time is new. Everything is new. This is why, like, when sometimes people come to the church, I like, guess, catechumens, and they want to join the church. Well, why do you want to become Orthodox? Well, I want to marry this person. You have totally missed it. Like, that, that's not the, that, that, that's like the, the last reason you should become Orthodox is because you want to marry someone. That's like, that's again living as your own individual self in your own individual home caring only about your own individual things and then you want to come to the church to support your individual life according to what you want that is not submitting yourself to be a part of the body of christ that is not submitting yourself to this process of sanctification and transformation through the holy spirit that is not leaving behind the old life and becoming the new right that is i want to just stay who i am but I want to marry this one person. That's why in the church, we don't even permit someone to marry outside the church. Because if a person is in the body of Christ and has this mystical union with God and with the rest of the body of Christ, how can that person be united? And, and as we said, marriage is a, is a mystical union with another person. How can that one person be united with someone who doesn't have any interest at all or care at all about being a part of the body of Christ? Like that union can't happen. It's like having a part of the body that's like separated from the, other, the rest of the body, even those inside the body. Everything in our body, right, is, is, is part of the body. And if you had something that wasn't, it's considered a foreign object, right? So you can't have someone marry outside of the church, not because it's some kind of strict rule, not because the the church decided, you know, because we want to make it difficult for people to marry outside the church or no, it's because if you are in union with Christ and union with the rest of the body of the believers, you cannot also be in union with someone who is not in union with those other things. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That also means that me personally, I've become new, right? So when, again, when I am submitting myself, you know, to, 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 to want to join the church, I mean, maybe sometimes the cradle Orthodox people are at a disadvantage in this because all of this happened when we were children and we didn't have to think about it and, it didn't, and didn't, we didn't know what was happening. And we kind of grow up in it and we don't really necessarily reflect on its magnitude and its importance and what it actually means, okay? But this is what it actually means. 
it means that the person that we was we were before died. We are not the same person that was born. We are a different person. And this different person is called to live a different life, right? It's called to live a life that is pleasing to God. And of course, we are still weak and we still sin and we still struggle, right? But we are called to set that as a goal. And we are, and, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, that goal is something that we can work toward, right? Because it's not just a commandment that God says you must be this. No, it's a, it's 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 through the work of the Holy Spirit that He enables us to reach that, right? But that doesn't mean that we just get there immediately. We are still struggling against the old man. We're still struggling against the corruption that is in our nature. This is why when the Lord speaks about the wineskins, he says you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. Like, if, if what will happen if you put the new wine into the old wineskins? What does the Lord say? It will burst. Right? So you, you, you have to take new wineskins that have not been stretched. Right? That's the whole point of the wineskins, right? It's like when you put wine, new wine into wineskins, the wineskins will stretch. So if the wineskin is old, it means it's already been stretched. So if you put new wine into it, it's going to stretch even more to the point where the wineskin will burst. So you can't, you can't put the new wine in the old wineskins. You have to put new wine into new wineskins. So when the new wineskin represents the new mind, the new concepts, the, the new goal, the new purpose, the new calling, the new creation, right? You take the new message, you take the word of God, you take the calling of God, and you put that into a new person, brand new person. You're not putting that into the old person, right? You're not just giving the old person new commandments. No, you are completely new, right? You're completely new. It's like your odometer is back to zero. You're completely new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, so there's a lot of big words and things here. So, sin had taken away our union with God, our attachment to God, okay? But through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father is working to reunite us again, meaning God is the one who wants to reunite us. God is the one who wants to, it's like we were with him, and then we left him, and he wants us back again. And, he, and so it is God the Father, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is reconciling us again to him again. He is the atoning intercessor that restores our relationship with God the Father again. So just as we are being reconciled to God, right? Just as we are being restored to God through this ministry of reconciliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? We also have been committed to us the word of reconciliation. Meaning that what we experienced through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is also asking us to do the same, okay? To reconcile others to the Lord and to be reconciled to them, right? This is now when we, we speak about, for instance, for about evangelism. Evangelism is an extension of salvation. 
evangelism is an extension of this ministry of reconciliation. Evangelism is the natural step saying that the body of Christ should not be limited to a certain group of people in a certain physical location and a physical building. This, this is not the, 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 the end of the work of reconciliation, that we have received reconciliation, that we have been baptized, that we understand the word of God, that we are growing, that we have fathers of confession, that we are, you know, that we are living this life, that God, this new life, the old has passed away, now we have the new, and that we are content and satisfied to receive this, to be reconciled to God, to be joyful because of our salvation, and that we live the rest of our lives like this. This is not the end. This is the beginning. The, the receiving this new nature is the beginning. All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay? God has reconciled us to himself, and we also should reconcile other people to God. And this is our role. This is one of the things God calls us to do, is to go and to spread his word of reconciliation, to reconcile other people to himself. Also, it says, not imputing their trespasses to them. What does impute mean? So not imputing means to not count. Like not counting their trespasses against them. This means that we have forgiveness. Does this mean that God does not judge sin anymore? No. And we were just talking about a couple of slides back about how there is the judgment. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So this, this is giving us the means of forgiveness. This is um, taking away the requirements of the law, the law of Moses. This is saying that the, the law of Moses, which was impossible for us to follow, and the law of God, which at any time, when, even when we try to follow, we cannot follow. This is the solution, is that God is imputing, right? He is imputing our trespasses. He is not counting their tres our trespasses because we are asking for forgiveness. Whereas in the Old Testament, right, the people, whenever they would fall short and commit sin, they would offer sacrifice. But even St. Paul in the book of Hebrews says it is not possible for the blood of rams and goats to take away sin. Right? It was all symbolic in the idea that something has to die and have its blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, which was pointing toward the Messiah, who was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the actual killing of animals did not actually forgive anyone. That's what St. Paul said in Hebrews. Right? But it is through the sacrifice of Christ that we actually achieve true forgiveness, that our sins are actually not counted against us, and that God remembers them no more. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So when he says we are ambassadors for Christ, who is he speaking about? So in a general sense, we can say it's Christians, but literally here, who is he talking about? The apostles. So he's, as the apostles, St. Paul is like representing the apostles and saying, we are ambassadors for Christ. Christ has sent us to the world to give a message of salvation. Okay. And we, the apostles, are pleading 
okay? And it's actually God is the one pleading, right? God is pleading with you through us. Think about that. God is pleading. Like you have this image where God is just like, please, like, please do this. Like, like it's not, it's not an image of a God of wrath or this God of judgment, or it's a God who sees that the path that his beloved children are walking is destruction and, and they are dying and they are losing and they are falling and they are in pain and they are suffering. And he's pleading, please, okay? And here are my ambassadors. Here are the ones that I'm sending to deliver this message to you, okay? As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Christ is the one imploring, be reconciled to God. Come back to God again. Accept the ministry of reconciliation. Because everything about salvation requires our assent. You know, a long time ago when we were speaking about like different denominations, we talked about how certain Protestant denominations that believe in something called monergism. If anyone can remember what monergism is. Monergism means mono is one and erg means work. So it means one work or that the person who is working for salvation is only one person and that is God. The belief of monergism is that the only one who does work of salvation is God and that human beings have no uh, like they, they have nothing to contribute to the work of salvation, right? The belief of monergism is, is even goes to the extent of something called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace means the grace of God cannot be resisted. Meaning God comes to me and he saves me against my own will. That's monergism. We don't believe in monergism. We believe that God and man have both a role to play in salvation. Here, if, if, if God could just save, just without our input, without our work, without our effort, without us doing anything, then why is St. Paul saying that God is pleading with them? Oh, God, you're God, just do it, make it happen, you know? But that's not, that's not what he's saying. God is wanting, is like pleading with them, he's imploring them, be reconciled to God. Meaning God has come and he says, you know, I've laid everything out for you. Everything is ready for you. All of the plan of salvation is ready for you. I've done everything. All you have to do is come and pick it up. You know, it's like you have a person who, who has a table and he has like suitcases of millions of dollars each. And each suitcase has a person's name on it. You know, every, every person, every soul, every human soul, right, has a name on, on the suitcase and has millions of dollars inside. And he says, here it is. All you got to do is come take the suitcase. That's all you have to do. Come and take it. It's ready for you. I've done, I've done what you cannot do. Your job is just come and take the suitcase, which is compared to the work of God of salvation is, is, is trivial compared to what God has done. What God has done, no one could have done. In the first few chapters in the book of Hebrews focuses on that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than any angel, than any prophet, than, than, than anyone. Because he did what only he could do, and no one else could even come close to what he did in the work of salvation. So now that it is done, now that the Lord has shed his blood, you know, like we always complain, or at least I do, like, you know, when we prepare a lot for like a sermon or a topic or something, and we announce it in the church, 
and we say, hey, everybody come at this specific time because we're going to have this, this sermon or this Bible study or something. And then at the end, like two people come. So person prepared all of this. And in the end, there was just a couple people come. They didn't, nobody else benefited from all that work that was done. Imagine God who is saying to the entire world, I have performed salvation for you on the cross and my blood was shed and I was scourged and I was spat on and all this stuff happened and I went into Hades and I resurrected and, and the doors of heaven are open and then he looks at the world and everyone's just like, mm. you know, it's, it's not that interesting. I, I want to get back to, you know, my job. I want to I want to go back. I have, a, I have a big test tomorrow. You know, everything else about the world matters to me. But what you're saying, you know, that's not that important to me. I, it's just not interesting to me. Right. This is this is what God is saying. He's saying, I have done all this for you. And he's not saying it because he's sorry for himself. He's saying it because the people are dying. The people are the people are losing their salvation when there's no reason for them to. It's been thousands of years and people were going to Hades because there was no other option. And now that paradise is open, people are still going to Hades because they choose that they don't want salvation. Right. This is this is what he's saying. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, who is the one who knew no sin? Christ. Christ was made to be sin for us. What does that mean that he was made to be sin? That it would be like the, the sacrificial land of Carries our sin. Yeah, he, he carried our sin. Right? He, he carries all the sin of the world is on him. Okay? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because he is the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. He like took our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is what St. Athanasius wrote. He said, God became man so that man might become God. And maybe that strikes us like when we hear that like there's something that sounds wrong with that how is it that we are going to become god it's a god with a little g it's not that we actually become god it's that we become like god it's that we become have the characteristics of god is that we can be in union with god is that we can live in heaven with god again this is what god did and he offered this and going back to the idea that everyone is kind of doesn't care about what god did he did this for only human beings. No other creature, no other species, no other creation, no, nothing else ever in the history of creation did he offer. Actually, the Bible talks about how angels look upon this mystery of God's dying and God's resurrection and the work of salvation of God, and they don't understand it. Like even angels look at the work of salvation and they, they are confounded by it. Like how is it that God would do this and, and, and like even the idea that why would God love us this much? Like what exactly? Like what really did we do for God to offer this to us? What, why didn't God offer it to, to animals? Why didn't God offer it to, to, to nature? Why didn't God, no, only us, no, no other creation. And it wasn't at all based on anything good that we did or that we even promised to do. He didn't come and say, do you promise to be good? Okay, I'll, I'll believe you. No, we didn't do that. So all of this, right, he became sin 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is a good stopping point um, for today. It's, uh, it's truly a mystery of how God loves us to the extent that he does because no other love can compare to his love. Any other religion that believes in a deity, that deity, when you speak about the role of that deity, cannot compare to the, 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 the way that we, like the, cannot compare to God's characteristics, okay? Cannot compare to God's characteristics. God is a self-emptying God. He, is, he empties himself. He gives up of what is, is his own, right? And he is pleading with us. He is pleading with us to be saved. Does anyone have any comments or questions before we pray? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask, O oh God, for you to look upon us with your mercy, for you not to count our sins against us, for you to raise us up, O oh Lord, from the ash heap, for you to strengthen us and to make us to be able to see with the spiritual sight and to have a strong faith. Then we might be able to see all of the enemies working against us as individuals and against your body and the church, that we might be able to see, O oh Lord, how we have been deceived, how we are going after false idols, that we do not see, O oh God, your love, that we do not feel your pleading or your desire to win us back again. We see, O oh Lord, how you are humble and how you call us to yourself, you who are the Lord and the Pantocrator and the Creator, that you come down to our level and you, you deal with us, O oh Lord, in a way that we can understand. And out of your humility, you call us back with your still small voice, hoping, O oh Lord, to win us to yourself. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your love and for your mercy and for your compassion. We thank you because you are patient with us, even as we are obstinate and prideful and that we refuse to turn, and that we continue, O oh Lord, in our sinful ways. We ask, O oh God, during this time of the great fast, that you teach us, O oh Lord, how to learn self-control, how to gain control over our senses, how we might be more uh, better at managing our time, how we might remember you throughout our day, and start the day, O oh Lord, in prayer, and end it in prayer, that we might read your word, that we might confess, that we might Immerse ourselves, O oh Lord, in your, in your doctrine. Teach us, O oh God, how to remember you so that we do not forget and that we might always see with spiritual sight that you are always with us and present. Protect us from the sin that is in this world and all the evil armies of the evil one that surround us. Protect us, O oh Lord, so that we not, might not be deceived or consumed by him. And help us, O oh Lord, always to serve in this ministry of reconciliation with those who are around us. Seeking, O oh God, the salvation of others, bringing them, O oh Lord, to yourself, so that they might see, O oh Lord, the light that we see. Teach us, O oh God, how to stand for the truth and how not to compromise our faith. Teach us, O oh God, how to grow in understanding and knowledge and love, just as you love each of us. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.